0: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum. My guest today is Mr. Dominic Sale of the General Services Administration. Dom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Noah. Good to be here. Dom, you've had a, a, a quite a career with a variety of different Uh, service experiences. So could you start today by just telling us a little bit about what service means to you?
1: Service to me is having the opportunity to work to make people's lives better. I don't see it as a a gift. I see it as a privilege. Um, We who are able to serve the government uh, have this amazing opportunity to make a real impact. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to the government. Um, that's what makes us able to still recruit the best and brightest, even if we can't compete on pay sometimes. I think just the mission itself is so unique and broad for the federal government. So, uh, you know, I'm of the mindset that you come into this world, you've got one opportunity to make it a better place, you better get to
0: work. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I saw you You went to school, you did your, your uh, bachelor's at the University of Virginia. So you were always in kind of close proximity to Washington, D.C. Do you think location had anything to do with it, or was, or was this a passion of yours long before? So it's interesting. When I was a kid, my
1: favorite school trip and what I'd really stuck out in my mind was this trip we took to Washington, D.C. I always had a fascination with D.C. and the big buildings and just kind of the, the gravitas of the place. And also, I grew up in a very small town in western New York, so, you know, it was just... a just coming to a big city was exciting enough to me. But it's funny you, you mentioned the uh, geography. So I, I, w- I went from my small hometown to Charlottesville, Virginia, for for college, and then I I say I got sucked into the gravitational pull of Washington D.C. You know, you go when you go to UVA, about you know at least a third of the kids are from the Northern Virginia area, and uh, so I ended up actually um, one of my friends dad's had a small consulting company out of his basement. I didn't know what I was doing with my French and anthropology degree. He said, come work for me. And uh, that's how it all got started. That was in Herndon, Virginia back in 94, 94. Yep. So what was that first company all about? So it was a little company called Public Management Group. And it was just him. And he, I think he had another partner he worked with on occasion, but not full time. And we did state and local work. So he would, uh, he specialized in public safety. So fire and police departments were our major clients. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long before he got bought up by another bigger company, David M. Griffith and associates, and they got bought up by Maximus. So my, my experience with the M and A world was, uh, very early in my career. I was a research analyst basically for him. I knew knew how to use a spreadsheet, not from my degree, but from a six-week business course I took after I graduated at the Commerce School there at UVA. And uh, it was fun. I've always loved, I've had a a, a fascination with data and using data to make decisions. And uh, I got to do things like call police departments all across the country to benchmark against cities of like size this was before, before the internet was just getting started. We had, you know, basic email. If we were lucky, we dabbled a little bit in, uh, geospatial as well. So we would, would do these studies called fire station location studies, and we had some software that optimized locations for, you know, of fire departments within a city. It was pretty rudimentary. It was pretty actually revolutionary at the time. That would be rudimentary. Something you could do on a Google Map in about three minutes today.
0: Data and benchmarking is the type of thing that you think of, you know, when we talk about the, the quote unquote, the private sector skill set. I mean, it basically sounds like management consulting. Uh, I thought I thought you're not supposed to be doing that in government.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we do everything in government. If you think we don't do it, we'll start doing it. It's, uh, <laughs> the breadth of what is available to work on in government, the problems you can take on, it's, it's endless. And that's part of what really drives me. The things I work on are management issues in government. So I am Really, right now, we, for all intents and purposes, are a management consulting organization within the federal government. I love that the the cutting across the grain of government, I've always worked on, not always, but for the most part of my career as a Fed, worked on these uh, cross-government management matters, so technology, human resources, all the kind of the operational the underbelly of government that the public really doesn't see, but the things that we can do to make government operate better. So I often mm. joke, you know, you ever see the 3M commercials. We don't we don't make the products, we make them better. That's how I feel. My role mm. has been in government since I started as a federal employee. Or when I started at OMB back in uh, two thousand and eight.
0: Well, so let me let me just ask you about that, because the then the trade-off is, if I understand it correctly. So if you're doing a similar function, you're inside government, so you're trading the what the expense accounts and the and the salary and and what are you gaining on the other side?
1: The satisfaction of being able to make a hands-on difference. Yeah, and and it's it's I sound I feel crazy saying that because the government is so huge, so vast that it's almost like dropping a pebble in the water. Sometimes you can feel like. There's just no way, no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I do, I'm going to see the difference I'm going to make. But then you look back, I've looked back over the past 10 years and see, and I say, wow, I mean, we've been frustrated. We joke about how we never get anything done, but we have accomplished a lot in technology in the last 10 years. I mean, to think that cloud computing was a term, virtually no one in government had heard of or uttered 10 years ago. And today it's a big part of how we run the government. I think it's, it's
0: pretty cool. So I would love to hear, are there, what are you really proud to have worked on or, or what do you think has been a really kind of a landmark achievement that you all have been able to, to bring into existence over the last few years?
1: So the coolest thing, the, the, the example I always bring up is something, it's actually a few years old now, probably back in 2009, uh, we launched this thing called the IT dashboard and basically um, it was revolutionary in a couple of ways. Um, it took data and put it out there for the public. Uh, and we had to do this really quickly at the beginning of that, that administration of the Obama administration, because we had, uh, you know, tra- transparency um, is great in concept, but in practice, it's really, really tricky and to get things done, you got to do them quickly before, before the bureaucracy catches up. And that was the that was the case with the IT dashboard. We really took a ton of data about our IT investments across the government, including the performance, including how the CIOs evaluated those investments, and we put them up there on a an easy to use uh, dashboard. And it's really cool. We got actually got a picture of the president using the IT dashboard when right when we launched in beta. That's
0: um, pretty cool. Yeah. Anytime so, you can yeah. put something
1: in front of the president, that's that's pretty meaningful. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. And that was a convergence. It was the, not just the transparency piece, but it was bringing data and analytics and making those accessible to everyone. And that isn't how, you know, government has had a tough time, you know, sharing. I think it's, you know, a, a, in any field, in any space, you got to be very careful what you share. But it's not hugely it's not a huge incentive to the individuals in government to share data out there. But as a government as a whole, it can have a huge benefit on the economy and how people view government, uh, the perception. So while it's probably in our collective incentive to be more transparent on an individual
0: basis, it's it's pretty tough to pull off. Yeah. You know, it was it was back around the 911 commission report that we talked about the need to share data more transparently even within the government so uh it's it's good to hear that we're making strides not just within but also from the government to the to the american people i'm sure folks will appreciate that yeah but i want to go back for a minute because before we we dive into to all of your more recent work interesting that before you were ever in the executive branch you were involved at a local level i was indeed Tell Uh, (laughs) us, what what was it like to be on the D.C. Advisory Neighborhood Commission? (laughs) So I was,
1: I I hung out in the suburbs for a while after I first came to D.C. And then um, around 2000, I decided, okay, I'm going to move into the city. So I'm really continuing to spiral into the core of the carry through that uh, gravitational (laughs) pull uh, analogy. So uh, I lived in a neighborhood called Mount Pleasant. Great. Diverse neighborhood with its you know a lot of cultural benefits, so it' was kind of the crossroads of d c we had problems there were problems with crime i think i I felt having come from grow, growing up in a small town and growing and then living in the suburbs i'd never been exposed to a lot of the things that, that an urban environment brings to you so it was a lot of things were new, they scared me, they thrilled me, but I, I could not get over the fact how people how complacent seemingly people were with the the level of crime like cars getting broken into all the time and, and, you know, robberies, you know, robberies at gunpoint and that people who lived there had seemed to have accepted these things or accepted what it would, what would be a normal level of that. Now my perspective has changed a lot after having lived in the city for uh, half of my life now, but at the time it really activated me. I said, you know, I, I want to bring these kind of small town sensibilities and expectations into this urban environment. And so I very quickly ran, uh, for the ANC. I, w- I wasn't even there a, a year yet, but I had made myself known on the local listservs, et cetera, and just go into some of the ANC meetings. And I ran and I actually ran against someone. So usually a lot of these, uh, at least at the time, a lot of these seats were, um, were not competitive. You know, it's usually one person who decided to run. This is not the, the jewel in the crown position in D.C. government. These are very, very low level, <laughs> nonpartisan elections. Anyway, I ran, I won, I had 70% of the vote in that first year. I was the chairman, and I threw myself into this. I, this this was what I wanted to do. Um, it was, you know, it was exciting. You had a direct, you know, even though we didn't have any legislative powers we did have advisory influence we had a lot of influence on the neighborhood so being putting myself in that position where i can help manage kind of public resources and and represent the public was something that thrilled me and to the
0: point where i was 70 of the vote too yeah (laughs) politicians would kill for that.
1: How did you do that? I'm the only one who put up signs. I actually ran a campaign. I had, you know,
0: with, with door-to-door
1: flyers. Oh. Yeah, yeah. We had a small district. I mean, really, it's, I'm, I'm representing like three blocks of people here. And a lot of them were in my building. I had the benefit of having, I was also the president of my condominium at the time. So I think I would hope that I had a pretty good turnout from my condo. So that, that may have put me over the top
0: i i love that because i think you no know, it's so easy to just start focusing on national international affairs right the, the kind of the highest levels and you're talking about at at, a, at the most local level at the kind of the unit of of direct contact with people what, what was your i mean what was it like being in that job so it's one thing to run did you th- did you think you were able to to change anything or was or was their complacency just kind of your uh, your naivete as an outsider to this situation. A uh, both. So I <laughs> I actually
1: got a a, a couple of things. Um, one was one of my priorities was to really operationalize this ANC this this body. There were six of us. Um, it had really not. There wasn't a lot of structure to it governance. So I was as the chairman the first year. I brought order to the meetings. I, we started using Roberts rules of order. Um, you know, we had structured agendas. Uh, I was trying to drive an agenda versus I think a lot of the ANCs have been historically very reactive, not proactive. <clears throat> so that's one thing. And that's one thing. That's a common theme throughout my career is I, I cannot go into a place and not try to make it run better. And that's one thing I love about my current job is running operations for something like TTS is there's so many ways to kind of optimize the machine to, have an, to maximize impact. But with the the ANC, I um, the 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 biggest issues I worked on the one I was most I would say, you know, looking back obsessed with was crime, mm-hmm. and I was doing a lot of reading out the, at the time on like the broken windows theory. Remember, this is the time when Giuliani had cleaned up New York City, and right, right. you know, in retrospect, my views have changed quite a bit. But I took on you know zero tolerance was one of the things that people talked about at the time uh, as you know. This is how you don't tolerate any of the little crimes and the big crimes kind of go away um, with those. So that's what I was I, I put together this resolution. So our actions, we didn't we didn't pass laws or, or bills. You know, we passed resolutions to to D.C. government saying this is what we want as a neighborhood. And uh, through a very kind of red meat campaign, you know, getting kind of the, the forces you know, activated, I, I shored up quite a bit of support for this resolution that in retrospect, I would never, never do today. Um, wow. it was basically, you know, it was broken windows in a, in a, in a resolution and it passed because one of the people, one of the commissioners didn't show up. It passed by three to two or something like that. Wow. So, so half the <clears> battle <throat> and battle is just showing up. Huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And I was, you know, there were those who hated me and those were like, wow, that's exactly what we needed. It was, and it it was, it was polarizing. I, I regret it because it was polarizing and I don't think it's the right way to look at crime um in this in cities today. I've learned a lot since then and uh but yeah, just the the whole it was very thrilling, but it was also all consuming. I would work. It, these are not paid positions and I spent every free moment. I sacrificed my personal life really. Mm. To do this, and I think that's something a lot of politicians do—they don't really get credit for. You, you really you give up your personal life. It's all about even the personal stuff, even those interactions with you know, people in the neighborhood. It's all it all becomes political in the end. Yeah. So I, that became so consuming. That was before I was a federal employee. And then I said, well, if I'm gonna do this kind of stuff, I might as well get paid for it and eventually ended up in the federal government and kind of checked <laughs> checked out of all this this like uh gadfly, you, know, you know, local government uh, craziness. It's just it, it just sucks you in and it's hard to it's hard to know how to to um regulate it.
0: Well you're you know, you're working on something where the the impact is gonna be immediately felt, right? And it's it's kinda of right at home. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I actually I want to ask you about learnings from that kind of bigger picture. So, here you were, you were, you were a first time commissioner. You had you had come into this neighborhood relatively recently, right? When you ran, and so oh, yeah. how did? Yeah. How does it make you think about kind of the value of outsiders versus insiders, not just in elected office, but but really in government, right, where you have you have some people who have been looking at these problems for a long time and maybe complacency is a risk. And you have some really well-intentioned newcomers who, who um, you know, may want to do a, a, a tour of duty or rotation. But, you know, you're going to and, and you gain something, but you lose something. What do you think is kind of the right balance between those two different folks?
1: That's, that's a really good question. I I think I brought some value. First of all, I helped people feel listened to that hadn't, that who had been marginalized in this neighborhood, having a contrarian opinion or kind of a tough on crime opinion was, you know, would in this neighborhood, it's one of the most liberal neighborhoods probably in the country, would make you somewhat of a pariah. You know, people just kind of keep their mouths shut. So, I helped people give voice to people who did have an opposing opinion and for some real legitimate reasons. And I, I hope that, you know, it brought just as we uh, you know, today are bringing folks into the government who who are come from industry, who have a different perspective, just bringing that forcing that discussion to really look at look ourselves in the mirror. Complacency comes really quickly and it's not it's it's just human. It's it's the way society is set up. We We can't constantly want to be in a state of chaos and flux and sometimes people get comfortable. Incentive structures are built around around the, the the whatever the status quo is. So it's really hard to break the status quo. I don't know. I think it was good. I, I, I don't I don't regret it, but I learned a lot since then that you need to really listen to the people who have been in the situation. You can't assume they're 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 dopey or they're lazy or they they don't they don't understand because they do, they do, yeah. And this is this is a problem in you know this is this is kind of how people view the government in general. You, know, you get this this notion out there that the government. and my dad, even you know, my dad tells me you know talks about these lazy government workers and
0: <laughs> you know you hear the one
1: hear the stories about people watching porn on their t te- on their computers and that's you know it ruins it for ev- everyone. That's just not the government I know. It's uh people work hard in general. Yes, there are people who would take advantage of the, the system. It's really hard to get rid of a federal employee once they're in. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm lucky I've worked in places where I just I I feel like I'll put, put my government team up against any industry team. They're hard working, they're focused, they love what they do, they're passionate. Yeah, I'm really passionate about this idea that, you know, you gotta bring you really have to look at, all, at things in all angles before you really draw any conclusions. And in the case where I ran, when I did the city government
0: stuff, I ran in headlong. I was, I was young and I think naive at the time. No, I, I think it's, it's such an important point. And in many ways, I mean, what, you, what you're doing and what you've been doing is, you know, it's, it's not preserving the status quo. It's finding ways to improve it. And so, you know, it's it's heartening to hear that that not only that that work is is happening in government, but that there are dedicated folks and dedicated entities focused on on doing just that. So I, I think that's I think that's great. Actually, curious if you could if you could tell us. I mean, you talked about the IT dashboard as something you're proud to have worked on. Are there have there been any? kind of hard fought battles that that you guys had to really kind of push a boulder up a hill to get something to change, but were ultimately successful in, in driving some reform? I think
1: the whole notion, so, and again, I'm looking at this from the macro, it's not really one thing, but when we were talking, when I was in OMB, you know, the Federal CIO was a new concept getting the federal government organized around like a strong central authority or uh, office was new when I started at OMB and in, in the EGov office we called it at the time, there were about you know, maybe ten people tops and by the time I left five years later that it had its own funding source it had quadrupled in size you know i t was clearly increasingly more important to uh, in the, over those five years and in the five years since the same trend. Mm-hmm. So I think um, one thing that we oh, we're all, we always kept talking about is well, we need these, like, we need these SWAT teams. We always called them SWAT teams, like, of experts to go into the agencies. And we were talking about that back in 2008, 2009. And it didn't happen the way I think we thought it would happen. I think well, in some ways it did. So we created U.S. Digital Service, which I think is a lot that – but right. then I never, I never thought, well, this maybe we can have this centralized service that the government, the agencies can pay in, pay for, so it's reimbursable. I never thought about the the economics of having a re- reimbursable service because it was just wasn't how I'd been trained to think about the government. But today we have 18F and the PIF program, and now the centers of excellence and those things are it's it's a great way it's a different way of thinking about a marketplace for federal i t where you don't have to have the expertise spread out in every agency. Yes, you need people smart enough and and savvy enough to make the right decisions based on the information available. but we don't need to build a team of superstars i t superstars in every agency if we can aggregate that talent in one place, which is I think What we've finally done today, that didn't exist when I got started in this 10 plus, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But now I think that's a huge thing that we, you know, we lose sight of because it kind of evolved over time. But having this capability to have aggregated really top notch talent in one place in GSA and then in
0: USDS, I think it's a game changer. It's huge. It's absolutely yeah. huge. And when you hear some of the stories um, on the side, you know, both from the people who come and serve as presidential innovation fellows or at the digital service or at ATF or the people who benefit from those services, it's really it's it's quite incredible that that's uh, that it exists. And I, and I think when you hear the conversation around the government competing for top technical talent, um, people don't always give kind of the 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 proper due to those, those entities because they, they are doing, um, you know, a great job. Now I'm going to go back to one of our previous points, which
1: is that only works if those folks, and these are the new folks, this is this infusion of innovation of new thinking into government. It only works if they take the time and find that right balance to listen.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is
1: where we shot ourselves in the foot. I think early on in this model was we had people who, had maybe some prejudices about government, government workers. I heard the rhetoric, you know, the, you know, agencies, they're, they don't know what they're doing. There's no talent. Um, we need to, we need to come in and act upon them and help. It doesn't work that way. Government will chew you up and spit you out. It's a huge organism with its own set of antibodies. And if it doesn't like what's being enacted upon it, no matter how, you know, how strong you push, it will not happen. So mm. I think we learned some lessons early on and we have adapted um, to being more of listeners. We've adapted from going in and doing DevOps and, and building things for agencies to very much a deliberate part of our model today is to do what these called these path analyses. We sit side by side with the agency and really scope out the problem. Uh, we do a lot more listening and less talking early on now. And I think that's, that's kind of cool as well.
0: It's it's the human-centered design elements, right? It's it's putting the user at the center of what you're building. Uh, so, John, what, what would you say to a, to an IT professional or to a, a graduating student who's considering, I don't know, going out to a big tech company in, in California, which no need to put a name on it, but some big tech company, or, or considering, you know, coming to join 18F or the digital service or working somewhere in the government? What would you say to them? I would say look at the data. I don't, I don't even need to make the
1: case. People who come and work with us want to stay, so we hire a lot of people on term appointments who are doing their "quote unquote" service. The, the majority want to stay either with us or somewhere in government. So just listen to them. I can tell you stories, but just listen to the people who come here and just love it and want to stay and work, and who get paid just fine. You know, maybe we're not. You know, maybe they could double their salaries. These aren't, frankly, people who are motivated by money. They're motivated by making a change, and you can do that in a government, and, and you can survive. Trust me, I survive in a government sal- salary just fine. I appreciate that.
0: So to bring, <laughs> it, bring it full circle, you talked up, up front about you know, service uh, maybe not being, or public service not necessarily being the right way to characterize what it is you're doing. How should we be talking about serving our country? How would you like the narrative to go? I mean, I it goes both ways for me. Like, on one hand,
1: I think it's great. I mean, we can talk about our mission. We can talk about the amazing things you can do in government and the problems you get to solve and have a direct impact on, and really be empowered to do it. That's fine. But I don't want people to feel like you know they are doing the government a favor, the American people a favor. I think these are just amazing jobs in their own right. Com- you know, compensation is just one of the one of the factors that influences. Whether you want to take a job or not, and people who work for the government, maybe compensation's not the most important factor. But, you know, don't let's not frame it as some kind of a volunteer or, you know, thing or a hardship to work for the government. It's 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 a privilege. It's an honor. It's something that I wish everyone would at least try as part of their career. But at the very least, having this uh, having these kind of discussions, I think are really important because if people don't work for the government, I think I want I would at least like the American people to really understand what the government is and what it does for them. And uh, and that we are people just like them and we are hardworking and we're, you know, we're solutions oriented, but it's hard to get things done in government. And that's something that needs to be acknowledged as well. But that's what makes the job fun, I think.
0: Well, uh, Dom, so, so grateful for your time today and for your being here with us and for all that you've been doing, uh, inside government, uh, for, for the country. So, uh, before I let you go, any, any final thoughts for, for our listeners? No,
1: I think you're doing a great service here. I love that you're trying to humanize, uh, government employees. There are a lot of people out there, uh, like me who, who just love it and I, don't, I you know, we t- we talk, we think about leaving sometimes, but just the mission really keeps pulling us back in and our ability to make an impact. So if anybody out there listening is questioning whether they want to work for the government or not, you know, at any point in your career, give me a call or let Noah know and I'll talk to you because I think um, I've got nothing, but uh, it's certainly been the best part of my career thus far. And I think it's going to on for a bit longer before
0: i try my hand in another sector i love i love the government let's let's leave it there dom i'll tell you you did All you right. did do one service for me today which is you made the case that dc has the gravitational orbit as a new yorker and as a, as a fellow new yorker i've been trying to make that case for <laughs> for close to a decade now so thanks for helping me out with that no dom problem. excel thanks for thanks for being here we appreciate your time For more episodes of the Inspired Service podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.